Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46 is where we're going to start off. We're, we're going to uh, throw some extras in there as we move through this passage. But we are continuing our Who's Your One study. We are looking at the importance of one this morning. The importance of one. Now, we, we usually don't think very highly of, of one. Uh, one isn't our favorite number. Uh, we don't want one dollar, right? We don't want one cookie. We don't want one glass of sweet tea. We don't want one touchdown. You know, we, we, we want more. We want a lot of cookies. We want a lot of dollars. If you're me, you want multiple glasses of sweet tea. And last night, we were all rooting for multiple touchdowns. Some of us were just rooting for the, la- the wrong team. Where is he? He's, he's a- That's right, he's upstairs in the booth, Justin Saltzman, rooting for the wrong team. There may be other UT fans in here. That's okay, you can stay. But we don't think highly of one. I mean, we... That's just not our, we, we, we want stuff, we want much, we want a lot. Give me, give me much, give me more, give me much, much. We don't think of one. The Bible, though, thinks quite highly of one. One Lord, one spirit, one church, one faith. A passage we studied this past Wednesday night in our Ephesians study. One baptism, one God, a, one lost sheep. Leaving the 99. One wayward son. Oh, the Bible loves the one. Luke 15, 7. Jesus told the people who are listening to him, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. The Bible thinks quite highly of one. And one can be powerful. One can be monumental when we are obedient with one. One conversation, one meal, one invitation, one reached out hand, one neighbor, one coworker, one friend, one relative. If we are obedient with one, God can take the one and multiply that one the same way he took the, the five loaves and two fish and fed thousands. See, God's not concerned about the number. He's concerned about obedience. And that brings us to our main passage this morning. 1 John 45, through, uh, 45 and 46. Jesus has been teaching. You know, John doesn't start at the, the... John starts at the beginning, but he goes way back to the beginning. Luke, Matthew start at the birth Mark starts with like the ministry, the baptism and the ministry. John goes back to the beginning of time and then skips everything else until the beginning of the ministry. And so we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And scripture tells us, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. The one 
Right, we got we're going to look at a lot of ones this morning, but these ones that we will look at are powerful ones, are life-changing, world-altering ones. The first one we see this morning is we have one intentional witness, Philip found. One intentional witness, the one who is willing to go and uh, talk to someone. That was Philip. Now, Nathaniel was his brother. That's okay. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It, it, it's good. It's, it's not always the easiest, but it's good. But we're going to see four aspects of the one intentional witness. Some of these we're going to get directly from Philip. Others we're going to get from just the way life is and how we need to be as a people. Uh, one intentional witness, one aspect of an intentional witness is intentionality. We're going to look at four. Intentionality, accountability, maturity, and honesty. First one is intentionality. Witnessing is not just going to happen. It is rare. It's rare enough that I will say that it's not. It just, it just doesn't come up often in a random conversation with a stranger, with somebody you just met. It, it doesn't it never happen, but it is not common. So let's just go on and say that it won't, so that's not our default. That's not our expectation that we walk around thinking, well, people are just going to run up to me and ask me about Jesus. I know it. No, they're not. To be one intentional witness, you have to have intentionality. We're going to have to make a concerted, a determined effort to be one witness, to be one for somebody, for our one. We're going to have to do our part and go out and, and talk to people. And sometimes it's people we know and sometimes it's people we don't know. And we have to, but we have to do it that way. See, Philip had to be intentional. We see intentionality with Philip right here. He was intentional to go and tell. Philip went to his brother, Nathaniel, found him. There's some implication here. He had to look for him. You, you don't find people you're not looking for, usually. You notice that when you're looking for something that's lost, it's always in the last place you look. You find it in the last place you look. Every time. Every time. He was looking. Y'all get that after lunch. Um, every, he, he was looking for Nathaniel. He was going around. I know my brother's here somewhere. And, oh, he found Nathaniel. That was intentionality. Philip had to go and tell. We're going to have to go and tell and look for people. Second thing, uh, second aspect of being an intentional witness is accountability. We need people around us doing the same things we're doing, encouraging us when we slack off, and us encouraging them as well. That's what we have to have. We have to have accountability. Michael, you've been preaching on discipleship ever since you came to this church uh, three, weeks, three years and a month ago. Well, yeah, it's called accountability. It's called, we have to talk about these things. We have to hold each other accountable. You should be able to come to me at any point and say, Michael, who have you invited to church this week? Michael, who have you shared the gospel with this week? 
And I should be able to say, well, I talked to this person or I talked to that person. That's accountability. We are all in this boat together. We have a, uh, a, a wonderful saint in our church. Sometimes people will come to him and, and talk to uh, him about things that are going on that they're not particularly pleased with. And they might be a, a little uh, vocal in their aggravation, maybe a little agitated one way or the other. And his response is, who have you told about Jesus this week? Who have you witnessed to this week? Who have you affected positively for the gospel this week? Great question. Kind of levels it out a little bit. But we've got to be holding each other accountable. We have to be asking each other and encouraging each other and pushing each other toward the goal of our one. The, the, the short definition for this, or the short word for this, is discipleship. That's all that is. It's believers coming together and encouraging one another and getting into the word together and allowing that word to affect them personally and affect them corporately so that they then go out and witness and talk to and share with their one. That's just discipleship. Third aspect of, of an intentional witness is maturity. There's, I, I would bet, I don't know this, I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't tell us, I, I would bet Philip is older than Nathaniel. Uh, it, just, it, it just rings as the big brother going to the little brother, I'm the little brother. Okay, so I, I know how little brothers respond to big brothers when big brothers say, hey, you need to come do this, make me. That's how we respond. Nod if you're a little brother. Or sister. Y'all do it too. And that's kind of what we have here. We have, uh, can anything good, smart aleck answer. That's all it is. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's the mature one here. Philip has maturity to come to Nathaniel and say, we found the one. We found the one we've been looking for and praying for and the law and the prophets told us about. At some point, we have to grow up as believers we have to grow up and man up or woman up as the case may be we have got to say a mature believer disciples and brings other people to jesus that's what a mature believer does therefore i need to mature and do the things i'm supposed to do in our culture, right, a sign of maturity is doing those things you're supposed to do even if you don't like them, even if they're hard. How many of you just cannot wait to get up and go to work in the morning? And maybe some of you just love your job. I do. I love my job. I, but, but how many of you just, I mean, it, it, you hate Saturday and Sunday because you don't get to go to work. Man, those weekends ruin my week. Not many of us. Maybe some of you. I'll, I'll, I'll allow that there are one or two that you are that way. That's okay. You can be different. But we do it, right? Maturity is getting up and going to work. Not saying, I don't feel like going to work today, so I'm not going. That's not maturity. Maturity is doing what we're supposed to do. As believers, what we are supposed to do is make disciples. Uh, maturity is an aspect of an intentional witness. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, Paul talking to the church in Colossae, 
for this reason, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that we want you to be filled so that something happens, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. We've talked about a couple of weeks now what bearing fruit is for the believer. Bearing fruit for the believer is making disciples, witnessing to people, having people come to Jesus because of your influence. Paul prays that they will grow in maturity, grow in their faith and wisdom and spiritual understanding, so they will walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. If you read the passage right above it, verse 8 of Colossians 1, you read that he heard this, Paul heard about them from Epaphras, the man who probably planted the church there. See, Paul was praying for the result of the believers in Colossae's discipleship. He was praying that they would grow in their discipleship. You're going to hear this word, discipleship, a lot. You should. Fourth thing we need to be an intentional witness, fourth aspect of an intentional witness is honesty. Part of maturity, part of growing up, is being honest with ourselves about why we don't do what we know we're supposed to do. It's part of it. It's just an, uh, a part of maturity. But there are things that we don't want to do. You don't want to get up and go to work in the morning. But you have mouths to feed. You have a house note or rent to pay. You've got utilities. You have, so I'm going to get up and do it. And, and why do I not want to get up this morning? Well, I got a jerky boss. Right, Elizabeth? Oh, you don't? Good, okay. I didn't even pay her to say that. Yeah, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go. I, I, I stayed up too late. Okay, well, you may have things to fix in your life to make getting up and going to work more enjoyable. Maybe it is a new job. Maybe it is something else that you need to, to do. But you still come to grips with what keeps you or attempts to keep you from being responsible, being mature. Then you do something about the problem. At least you should. That's maturity. That is honesty. Now, I'm going to fly through these, so listen in a hurry. There are ten excuses. These aren't all the excuses, but these are broad excuses that we use to not share the gospel, and we must repent, uh, or we must recognize them and repent of them. That's the honesty. Recognize them in our lives and repent of them. And yes, about four or five of these stepped on my toes, so I don't like them either. So if you don't like them, good, we're in the same boat doesn't change the fact that honesty and maturity requires us to address them, recognize them, then repent of them. Number one that uh, excuse we use to not share the gospel, spiritual lethargy. This takes place when we fail to obey. The, a lack of growth inevitably leads to a diminished desire to share Christ with others. We're not growing in our faith. We're not being discipled. Number two, growing inclusiveness. The idea that all religions lead to God and that's a, is a prevailing opinion in our world. And it slowly 
creeps and seeps into the church. Sometimes this view affirms Jesus is not the only way to salvation, but that God can be found in other good religions. We would say, no, we would never think that here. And, and maybe, maybe, I'll say maybe that's true, that nobody here thinks there's any other way to God but through Jesus Christ. But if we say it and we don't live it, what's true about us? We may acknowledge it mentally, but if we don't live the fact as if, we, if we don't live as if Jesus is the only way, it doesn't matter what we believe. Our life functionally shows people we do believe, growing inclusiveness. It's a subtle belief that somehow good followers will make it to heaven outside of true Christian conversion. That makes us feel good, too. Third, disbelief in hell. This undermines the urgency of placing one's faith in Christ alone. We must escape the wrath of God, and Jesus is the only refuge from that. Hell is a real place. Hell is a real result of not choosing Jesus Christ, and a lot of people are going to go there. Four, busyness. The unchurched need us to tell them about Jesus, but we let the needs on our to-do list get in the way. What priority do you give, do I give, to reaching the lost? Number five, fear of rejection. Research shows that only one in four unchurched persons will be resistant to faith discussions. doesn't say that one in four, uh, the, the three out of four are going to come to Jesus. All that's saying is only one out of four people are going to say, no, you're not talking to me about Jesus. The other three are going to be open to the idea. And those few with that antagonistic uh, attitude, they are not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. Their, their, their anger is a reflection of something in their past. That doesn't make it that much easier to get past. I understand that. That's one of, these are the one of the ones, number five, fear of rejection is one of the ones that I struggle with the most. Number six, a desire to be tolerant. The gospel is, in some sense, intolerant. We are telling people they are wrong and that what they believe is not going to get them to heaven. That's never fun. The one true God insists there can be no other gods. He's a jealous God. The Christian message speaks of a narrow way and no other name under heaven. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. But we sometimes want to not be disruptive of their beliefs. Number seven, losing the habit of witnessing causes us to not witness. For many reasons, maybe you used to be a witness, but now you have quit. Witnessing is a discipline. We have to do it over and over to get more comfortable with it, to get better at it, and it can be a regain. Number eight, lack of accountability. When you have someone holding you accountable, it can increase your zeal for witnessing. This is just more of that discipleship, responding, uh, surrounding yourself with other believers. Number nine, a failure to invite. When was the last time you invited an unchurched person to church? It's a very simple gesture, and we can, it's often, often has a significant outcome. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a, bit, in a minute. Number 10, the church is not intent on reaching the lost. The church, the church universal, the church local, is not intent on reaching the lost. It said it takes 85 church members to reach an unsaved person. 85 church members to reach one unsaved person. And that is a horrible, horrible ratio. Churches, 
have to regain their passion for the lost. It's what we're attempting to do. We don't want to create programs that you can be involved in and pull out of and be involved in and pull out of. We try, we pray, we hope we give you tools that make the conversation about the gospel easier for a lifestyle and not an hour or two every week. Second one, there's one person who needs to hear. One person in this story that needed to hear, Nathaniel. Nathaniel was Andrew's one. In this case, Nathaniel was a family member. That is often the most difficult person for us to talk to, a family member who doesn't know Jesus. Especially if it's a family member who grew up in a similar background with you. In, maybe you grew up in church, you got saved at a young age, your, your brother, sister, family member, they, growing up they had the language of salvation, the language of church, and when they got older they ran away, they drifted. And it wasn't a drift, it was a run. Those are hard conversations to have, but those should be the ones we are most concerned about. Nathaniel was a family member. Nathaniel was a skeptic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He had rejected Jesus based purely on where he was born in his head. Can anything come out of Nazareth? We often label people, though, before we know the truth about them. We look at somebody and say, that person's going to be a skeptic. I don't want to get into that. We look at what they're wearing, or we hear what they're saying, or where they live, or we see something about them and say, there's just no way that person would come to Jesus. That is not your call. It's not my call. And yet, this is where my toes get stepped on, too. The reality is, the, the bigger problem is our skepticism about the person, not the person's skepticism about the faith. The problem is that I am a skeptic about their ability to believe, which really means I'm a skeptic about the power of the gospel to change a heart. Because there's no depth of depravity from which the gospel cannot save someone. There's no look, there's no person, there's no living situation, there's no, there's no situation at all that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot reach down a hand and pull someone from. Yet I look at somebody and say, they'd never respond to Jesus. I'm off the hook on that one. And I turn and go on my merry way. And they turn and go to hell. I didn't share the gospel with them because I was the skeptic. Far too often we decide for the person rather than allowing the person to decide for themselves. He was a questioner, Nathaniel was. He would, can anything come? I mean, he, he, this was skepticism. This was a, a question that we don't want questions, right? I'd share the gospel if they wouldn't ask any questions. Well, that's not going to happen, number one. Number two, why are we scared of questions? If we know enough to be saved, we know enough to share our faith. If you can tell someone how you got saved, you can share the gospel. Period. That's all it is. And maybe that's all you know. That is okay. Because the Bible does not say that our apologetic method, our answers to all the hard questions, our ability to parse Greek verbs is the power unto salvation. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of salvation. So if we share the gospel, there's the power. We cannot be scared of questions. And this is what we try to do. But, but, but you know what the answer is? It's, it's brilliant you're, you're, you're going to be blown away by this. 
the answer to, to how you can answer skeptics' questions, can, can anybody guess what it might be? Starts with a D, ends in discipleship. Discipleship. Being a part of three circles when we offer it. More tools in your toolbox, more knowledge, the ability. If you know scripture, you get to answer the questions. I mean, and then you can answer the way Philip did and say, come and see. Come and see. Philip was introducing Nathaniel to our third one, one incredible savior. One incredible savior. That's the message that Philip had for Nathaniel when he found him. He, he went looking for him. He found him. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one, the one that Moses wrote about the, in the law, the one that the prophets wrote about, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Three things about Three characteristics of this one that, that Nathaniel, I mean, that Philip was trying to get across to Nathaniel. He was the promise that they had been waiting for, the, the Messiah that they had been expecting for a handful of millennia that, that Moses had, had talked about. And really, it goes back to Abraham. And as we've talked about before, really goes back to Genesis 3.15, the, the, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. They had been waiting for thousands and thousands of years. The promise that they were expecting, the one that had been talked about and prophesied over and over, Philip says, we found him. And this was no small claim. This wasn't the best burger in Lake Charles. I got to tell you, I found the best burger in Lake Charles. Burger therapy. I, I, I've got a friend here that, that works there, and, and I'm telling you, it is the best burger in Lake Charles. I've had a lot of them. That's, that's a big claim. But compared to we found the Messiah, the best burger in Lake Charles is piddling and nothing. It was the promise that they had been waiting for. It was the hope that they had been, waiting, had been waiting for. With that promise of a Messiah, of a leader, they were looking for salvation. They were looking for rescue. Now at this time, they're thinking military, they're thinking political. That was first on their minds. But somewhere in the back of their minds, if they had been discipled in Scripture, they also knew there's more to this Messiah than just a military or political win. And that was their hope. Salvation. What Philip introduced him to was the one who was worth everything. Remember, last week, we talked about the, the, the guys that brought the paralytic to, to the home where Jesus was teaching. They got more than they bargained for. They wanted a man to get up and walk. We, we said they wanted a... Uh, they were hoping for uh, a medical miracle and instead they got someone saved from hell they got more than they bargained for they had found philip had found the one worth everything and that statement sounds oh yeah he's worth everything no no let's 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 broaden that a little bit they found the one that was worth everything they had including their lives. Everything. Not part thing. Everything. Not something. Everything. 
thing. They were willing to give up their very lives to follow Jesus. And Philip, and in just a minute, Nathaniel had an inkling of that. But we hear Jesus talk about it in Matthew 13, 45 and 46. In a bunch of parables, he, he adds this one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. This was a fellow who was looking for the perfect pearl, the best pearl. And, and it got to where he's going to the markets. And pearls were some of the most valuable things in this day and age because they, couldn't, they weren't easy to get. They're not easy to get now, but they certainly weren't easy to get then. People died all the time trying to swim down to the oyster beds to uh, uh, find the pearls, the, the ones that would. And, and I mean, what are the odds that you pick the one? the one oyster with the best pearl this guy went all over the place looking for him and he'd buy them everywhere he went he was a pearl merchant but then he found the one and all those other pearls meant nothing they were dirt to him because he had the one so he sold everything he gave it all up he had found everything he was looking for that's what Philip tells Nathaniel about. We have found the one that I'm willing to give up everything for. And Nathaniel bought it. There was an invitation to respond. One invitation to respond. Number four. When Nathaniel asked his question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip didn't argue with him. Philip apparently wasn't like me. Philip could have said, well, here are all the reasons why we've seen this, we heard this, and he said these things, and we know about this, and have you heard about the baptism and the dove and all, the, all these things that are happening? He didn't, he didn't get into all that. He said what? Come and see. Come and see. And sometimes that's all the invitation we need to give. Maybe all this conversation we can give. Sometimes it's an invitation just to talk more. Uh, yeah, you've got to go, hey, could we continue this conversation later on sometime? Get coffee? Maybe one day Sulphur will have an all-day coffee shop where you can... I know we've got one that's snow cones and coffee. I've not been there. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bash them. Or, I, it's probably wonderful coffee. I want a Starbucks or CC's. That's what I want. I want just a coffee shop. But anyway, uh, maybe you invite them to that. You don't want to go sit in the, the Kroger one. You, you invite them to, to, to coffee. Maybe it's at your home. Maybe some, uh, that come and see is an invitation to church. Come and see. I don't have all the answers to the questions you're going to ask. And I, my preacher probably doesn't either. I know him too well. Um, but you, you might get more answers. And you can ask him. And if he doesn't know, maybe he knows somebody who does. And they can help you. Maybe it's an invitation to a friendship. Come and see what Jesus has done in my life. Come and see what it means for me to live daily for Christ. Sometimes it's an invitation to salvation. Come and see what Jesus can do in your heart right now. But regardless of what the invitation is at that moment, and we don't want to just stop on one of those and say, good, I never have to invite to salvation. That is not what I'm saying we must invite people to come and see. We must invite people to come and see. 96% of the people who will ever come to faith in Jesus Christ will be people that are invited 
to come and see. You hear that? 96% of the people who will ever come to Christ are people who will be invited to come and see. So if you're waiting on people to just happen into Jesus, just happen into the church, just happen into faith, that's 4% of the people who will ever come to Jesus. Only 4% of the people who will ever come to Jesus will just happen in. Are we happy with 4%? Well, you know, if, uh, you know, if the other 96% go to hell, 4% is a good average. Does that make you happy? That we win 4% of our football games this year. Your, your stocks, your mutual funds, your retirement gets 4% interest. No, no, nobody's happy with 4% unless it's a, an interest rate on a loan. That's, that's the only time we're, we're happy. Can we get that lower? We won't, no. We're not talking about, we're talking about positive interest. Our friends, our relatives, our work associates, our neighbors, they will come simply because someone said, come and see. Let me give you a, another statistic. And these aren't lies, even though they're statistics. 20% of believers... 20% of believers will invite another believer to church. A believer will invite another believer to church only 20% of the time. Uh, or one in five would do that. So if you have 100 people, stupid math, never mind. If you, 20%, it's still 20, 20 people, there we go. Yes, thank you, honey. That's why I have her sitting on the front row. She can do my math for me. 20 people will invite a believer to come to church. A believer. That's somebody who comes to town and says, yeah, I went to First Baptist wherever I used to live, and now I'm here and I'm interested in a church. Oh, you can come to my church. 20% of us will do that. One in five will do that. But only 2% of believers, of Christ followers, followers, will ever invite an unchurched or an unsaved person. Only 2%. 98%, I wrote down this number, 98% of us will not invite an unchurched or unbelieving person to church. Whew. I know this is a lot of math, and I'm not even going to try to do it, but only 2% of us will invite, and 94% of them, or 96% of them would come, or, or rather, 96% of those Whoever believe are invited, but only 2% of us will invite. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that's like a bad, you know, number of people going after people. I mean, we, we've never put a, a football team where it's 2 against 96. Who do we expect? That's not, that's not good. And yet, we expect to go into... Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth with only 2% of our people willing to invite an unbeliever to church. Now notice this. This is just inviting an unbeliever to church. This is not inviting an unbeliever to Jesus. We must invite people to come and see. And, 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 and let me say this right now. Inviting people to church is not evangelism. Inviting people to church is not sharing the gospel. It's good. Do it. It's better than nothing. But it's not evangelism. Evangelism is inviting people to Jesus. 
Then finally, we have one saving response. And I don't know where my note, there they are, good. That's never happened before. One saving response. Look at verse 49. We didn't read it to begin with. Verse 49 of John chapter 1. Rabbi Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's interesting why he says that. We're not going to get into that this morning. But what we do see here is given the opportunity to encounter Jesus, Nathaniel saw the truth of who he was. Given the opportunity, he was invited. Nathaniel, uh, Philip said, come and see. Give your one the chance to respond. Give your one the opportunity. Don't answer for your one. Don't be the skeptic in that relationship. Don't assume skepticism or a hard heart from your one. We must make the decision to tell and let them make the decision to follow or not. That's our job. Can you think of one person right now, not that you need to tell about Jesus, I'm asking you to evaluate your life. Can you think of one person that will be in heaven because of your personal invitation or witness? One person. Can you think of one person that will be in heaven directly because of you? If not... Will we be happy going to heaven empty-handed, knowing that 96% of the people should have been invited and weren't? Would have come to, well, the only way they'll come to faith is because they are invited? Your response this morning to this message may be to commit to your one. I pray it is, believer, that you will commit to going after your one. Let me ask you another question. Let me put a visual in your head as you stand over the coffin of a loved one or a friend, a hard-hearted loved one, one that you prayed would come to Christ, one that you wanted to experience salvation, but to your knowledge never came. Would you rather stand over that coffin knowing that you aggravated the mess out of that person while he or she lived. And they just refused. But you did everything you could. Or would you rather stand over that coffin mourning that you never told that person of the love of Jesus and the salvation that they could have through him? Schindler's List was a, a movie in the 90s, 80s, is that far back? Great movie about Oscar Schindler who saved 1,500, 1,700, something like that, Jews from the Holocaust. And he made up stories, he, he lied, he cheated, he did all these things to do it. He, he bought them, uh, he, he, he paid for them, he, he, he took every opportunity he could. At the end of the movie. He is a, a, an incredibly poignant scene. Schindler has a, a ring that I, I believe had the, the Nazi spider on it, the swastika. 
and he's, he's crying. I could have sold this ring. That would have been two more people. I, sh- I could have sh- sold the car. That would have been ten more people. He, he's, all these things he could have done. And 1,500, 1,700, and I've forgotten now the number of, genera- the number of people, descendants, that are alive today because of his selfless acts. I would rather be a Schindler coming to the end of the day saying, I could have done more. What I did wasn't enough. I know all these people are in heaven because of my witness, but if I had only shared the gospel more, I don't want to go to the end of my day saying, if I'd only shared the gospel. As an unbeliever, maybe your response this morning is to commit to the one. The one who fixes our brokenness. The one who has a plan. The one who is part of God's original design. Like I said, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the plan was for perfection. And sin ruins that. Sin ruins your life. It ruins my life. Sin is always outside of God's design and plan, and it breaks our lives apart. And Jesus wants to heal that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he would live a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and for my sins and took that punishment for us, rose on the third day to show power over sin. And if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And then we get to recover and pursue God's design again. We get to experience some of what he planned in this life. And in eternity, we get to experience all of what he planned. Believer, who's your one? Unbeliever, come to the one Savior this morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you still call. That you're calling us even today to go and share the gospel with our one and then have another one and another one. And we have a life of, 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 of consecutive ones, of, of people that you have put on our hearts that we then have been obedient toward and we have shared the gospel with. And Lord, we may come to the end of our lives and, and we think, why didn't they choose to follow you? But we won't come to the end of our lives and say, why didn't I share the gospel with them? God, work on our hearts today as we worship. Draw us to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how should you respond this morning? Maybe you need to accept Christ and you want some more information about that. You want to come to talk to Tom about that. You'd like to talk to me. Maybe you need prayer. We'd love to pray with you. Prayer rails are open. But as God works on you, don't push him away. Don't say next week, later on. Let God work on you now. Let's stand, let's sing, and you do business with him as he leads you this morning.